Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Francis of Assisi allegedly said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Sadly, many of us have taken this way of thinking as an excuse to remain silent. However, as Anderson points out, the scriptures specifically call us to open our mouths and use words. See, for example, Romans chapter 10. In fact, remaining silent can actually disprove Christianity, especially if you work really hard to show Christian love but never mention your faith. People will assume you are a well-adjusted non-believer and may even use you as an example of why they don't need to look into Christianity. In this episode, Anderson shares two secret tools of the missionary craft that he learned when he went off with his family to be missionaries in Japan. The first is running a language route, and the second has to do with parties. I don't want to give away too much, but these common sense strategies have the potential to get you back on track, reaching people with God's love. Here now is episode 318, Building Relational Credibility with Joshua Anderson. I want to start here by reading a story. This is a story from, uh, yeah, I think also N.T. Wright was, he's a British guy, so this will make much more sense if you think he's from England. (laughs) And he talks about, he says, on November 22nd, 2003, I woke up very early and I immediately telephoned my daughter. She was at home in England and I was in a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, attending an annual meeting of Society of Biblical Literature. But the reason for my call was in Australia, where the English rugby union team, so rugby, was playing in the final of the game's biggest challenge, the Rugby World Cup. Now their opponent in the final was the host nation, Australia. That country was always crazy about this sport, especially against England. And uh, I'd been following the contest through all the preliminary rounds, and England won game after game and getting closer and closer in the preliminary stages to the final hope had been building. Could they make it all the way? Might it be possible? I wanted to hear the news. Actually, I wanted his two-week award. I was eager. I was hungry to hear the news. The reason I phoned my daughter was that the television in my hotel offered hundreds of channels, but I couldn't find the game on any of them. Where Americans are thinking, of course not. <laughs> uh, he says, I couldn't find the game on any rugby, it seemed, hadn't made it to the American radar. I knew, however, that my daughter would be glued to the relevant English station. So with a quiver in her voice, she told me the news. The game had reached full time with two sides, exactly even at 17 points. Half an hour of extra time was being added, and the players are having given their all are now having to find more reserves of energy and determination. The atmosphere was electric. It was unbearably tense. This was as big as a sporting contest could possibly get. There was no question of going back to sleep. I got dressed. I went down to the lobby where all was quiet, it being around 5 in the morning. Half an hour later, I telephoned again. My daughter was shouting with joy. Shouting with joy, Johnny Wilkerson, the poster boy of English rugby, had won the game with a drop goal in the final half minute. Australia was devastated. England was ecstatic. I was ecstatic. This was the best sporting news England had had for many, many a long year. If part of the definition of good news might be something you want to shout about across the street, then this certainly fell into that category. Americans often encourage one another to think positively, whatever the circumstances, but I didn't need any encouragement that morning because something had happened 
that made all the difference. The trouble was, who could I tell? <laughs> I, who wanted to hear this good news? It was still early morning in Atlanta. I wanted to go to the reception desk in excitement and tell the clerks, we just won the cup. What? <laughs> what cup? I wanted to hug the concierge and say, did you hear the news? I wanted to shout it out to the sleepy joggers setting off on their morning run. I wanted to put up a big notice for everyone to see, England won the cup. This language doesn't even make sense to people, right? But I thought of trying to tell the night porters who were hanging around, but I knew it was no good because none of the hotel staff was remotely likely to be interested. They didn't even know who Johnny Wilkerson was. Just like when the Japanese people were like, was Jesus Santa Claus son? <laughs> American football has recently become big news in England, but it's a transatlantic cousin hasn't yet come over you know, here. Uh, so what was good news for me and my whole country wouldn't register in the hotel lobby at 5 a.m. in Atlanta, Georgia. I might as well go out in the street of a Scottish town and announce that China had beaten Germany at the world table tennis. <laughs> You know, all that I get with a shrug of shoulders and a big yawn. So what? <laughs> then, the crowning irony. As the day dawned and the conference woke up, I went to join the line for breakfast, and I was looking for someone, anyone, who would even know a major sporting event had taken place. Someone I could tell my good news to. The first person I met who knew about the game was an Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Who lost, right? He, of course, was crestfallen. What was good news for me was bad news for him. The message about the World Cup was foolishness to Americans and scandalous to Australians. <laughs> right? Yeah. Goodness gracious. So he says, uh, and he finishes here, but it kept me happy all week, and that's the point of what news does. It's bringing one story to its explosive climax, and it's opening up now a new and a different world. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in, right? We have an incredible story, incredible news. The entire world is different. Everything has changed. But who are we going to go tell this to? And doesn't it feel a little bit like that? We were going out, oh my gosh, this is incredible, everything has changed. And then it's like the world hasn't realized it here yet. Nobody even knows the terms. We're using strange sounding language to them <laughs> about cups and rugby and who's this Wilkerson guy and all of it, right? This highlights the point again, because the gospel is news, that means that it has to be contextually situated in sort of like a, a, a world history view of, of tangible world events. Because it's an announcement, that announcement assumes a bunch of background information. So when I talk to Japanese people, if you say the word God to them, the words that I'm saying don't fit their big background story context of information. They think of a God as just any sort of spirit, like everything has gods. Uh, you go to the Buddhist temple, you can get little charms for the gods inside your computer. <laughs> you know, uh, any, anything, river, this river's a god, that mountain's a god, this, it's, it's all within the earth, and they don't have any conception as far as, in their religious sense, of 
God beyond all space and time and history and the world who created it and stands above it. Um, so when I say the word God sent his son to die for sins, well, they don't have the same conception, too, when they're thinking of sin either. So all the words in the language that I'm using are ended up falling and being all mixed up. So this was the point I was saying last time. What's the work that we have to do when we speak to people? We have to tell the big story. You have to focus back on that five-act play. Creation, fall, you know, Israel, Jesus, church. And we were talking at the lunch table about some people were sharing how when they first heard the message and the gospel and their lives were transformed and they were getting on fire for Jesus and they were talking about it with all their friends and somebody said, yeah, it was very clear to me that they believed and knew this was reality. They're talking about all this Bible stuff like it's actually real. But the further point that I'm making beyond that now is you have to take all that Bible talk and ideas and things and place it in the people and they're in their minds in a broader worldview context, big overarching story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Because, again, they're already living in a story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's just they are living in a false gospel that cannot provide the needs of their heart. What you have is actually the true story. This is why it's good news, because it can provide all the needs and desires of their heart, the things that they're truly longing and seeking for, and they didn't even know it. We have that incredible story for them. So when we're doing that then, this is why, to finish the last of session two here, on bottom of page one, we need to be using both words and deeds. We need to be using both words and deeds. Would somebody mind just reading those out? Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Yes. So we see both words and deeds in there. What does he do? He proclaims. He preaches. He uses words. <laughs> Preaching, saying, proclaiming the good news of God. And then he calls people to repent and believe the good news. Uh, we see both words and deeds also in 1 Peter 2. If you want to turn with me there. I'll start in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may, what? Proclaim. Proclaim words. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you skip down to verse 12, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you've heard the old adage, right? Preach the gospel always. What was it? Some church father who said that? Or is that alleged? Okay, yeah. So preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary or when necessary, right? And of course, we don't like that, right? 
I don't like that because the scriptures are very clear that we have to both preach the gospels. With you're not, guys. I'm sorry. You're not going to get out of actually saying something. <laughs> you have to say it. You have to use your words to preach, to say the story, to say the news, to speak out the royal announcement, and God will use that to spiritually impact and change people's hearts and lives and draw them unto himself. And when mixed with belief, they are saved. You can't get out of actually saying the words. We know this from Romans, right? Because he says, Paul says very clearly, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? Romans 10, right? How are they going to believe if they never heard? How are they going to hear without someone preaching? How are they going to preach unless they're sent? And then he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So it's very clear, how will they call on him if they don't believe? And how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how are they not going to hear unless you say something? This is hard. This is hard because it's very comfortable to just only try to live a Christian life, right? And get people to see it. But it's not going to be enough. And we know that's not enough from, I'll tell you a story of a man who became Christian during this evangelical like tent revival thing that was going on in England. He went to tell his boss about it afterwards that he's a Christian now. And he was just ecstatic and wanted to, you know, he had a life-changing event. And the boss was like, that's great. I'm a Christian. And I've been praying for you for years. And the guy was like, what the heck? Why didn't you tell me? Why did you say anything? You're a Christian. You're... And the guy was like, well, what do, you, what do you mean? Why are you mad at me? I thought this would be fine. And the guy said, no, you're precisely the reason I hadn't become a Christian any sooner because I specifically was thinking about your life and the way you lived and your deeds and your joy and just everything about you that if you could live such a happy and an awesome life without any appearance of being a Christian at all, why do I need any of this? You can't just live the life as the example without also using the words to point people to what it means. In philosophy, we talk about the difference between simple seeing, when you see something, seeing as, and seeing that something is true. There's a difference between just seeing something as and seeing that it is. So it could take a barn facade out in the middle of a field. And it looks, for all intents and purposes, to be a barn. But actually, it's one of those old Wild West things that's just two-dimensional. You know, it's totally fake. Um, it's there. So it's impossible for you to see that it's a barn, right? You can't see that it's a barn if it's not a barn. But you can see it as a barn. Do you see the difference? Right? And then, say you don't even know what the heck a barn is. You're an alien, and you just drop down on the planet, and you see this collection of like, pieces of material, and all you do is you're not seeing it as a barn. You're not seeing that it's a barn. You just see the barn. You just directly simple see. Simple see, seeing as, seeing that. Well, how does this work with, with non-Christians, pre-Christians looking at your life? Right? They're just seeing you. They see your life. They see your deeds. They see your action. And they also see, they should be seeing, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Supernatural fruit, joy. Your life should look different, right? It should, not, it should look more than just like, my neighbor, he's a kind guy. 
you should have the sort of kindness in you that calls out for supernatural explanation, like we saw with the Amish forgiving. That's the spirit. That's the sort of lives that we are able and capable of living in the Holy Spirit. Lives that are not just kind, not just nice, not just peace, but a peace that is supernatural, like in that way. And when they see that, they have no, they just simple see. They're just seeing it. They're not seeing it as the work of the Holy Spirit. They're not seeing it as God. And they're not seeing that it comes from God. They just see that, but they do see it. They see it. They can feel it when they come in the group, when they come in this church. Feel the love. They see the difference here. You probably testified to that to as much. But you have to tell them. You have to provide the narrative, the context of what they're seeing by helping them to see it as. See this that you see, this love that you're experiencing here, this feeling here, this brotherhood, this all this? Um, that's coming from the, the Holy Spirit, the power that we have. That's coming from God. That's coming from our love in Jesus. That's coming from our faith, blah, 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 blah. Tell them all that. And then they, don't, they still don't believe yet, right? But now they have a framework in their mind to see it as the gift of the Holy Spirit now. Even if I don't believe that it is, I can see it as. And that begins to put the pieces together. And eventually, if what they do, if their will is to do the will of God, just like Jesus promised, they will see that this teaching does not come from man, but it comes from God. They will see that your deeds are done from God. What's the scripture I'm thinking of? It says, let your, uh, and they will see that and give glory to God in his day of visitation. Regardless, the just living the deeds in public alone will not be enough because you'll end up like this guy who says, oh, the, the fact that you're being so good itself is just evidence that I don't need Christ. Yeah, we have to have them both because the faith comes by hearing. What I'd like to do now, so up to this point, we've basically covered, okay, some of the problems around misconceptions and sort of bad examples we've seen of evangelism. We've covered a bunch of what evangelism isn't. We've talked about now what it is, the announcing of the good news of the kingdom and inviting others to repent and believe into it. Though I skipped that part for time. And... <laughs> and through our words and our deeds. Now, I want to talk more and switch to kind of being more practical. I want to move now into actual practicality. Because we talked what it is, what it isn't, and I also talked how to be. When you are doing it, you be normal. <laughs> be, be normal. Um, but now, well, what do we do? Uh, so what I want to do is offer you some, a few of the secret tools of the craft. Some secret tools of the trade that we missionaries know. And <clears throat> if I told you I would normally have to kill you, but it's okay. We'll let you have it. Because um, we all pay, pay admission for lunch and everything. So, yes. Uh, but I want to share with you some of the things uh, that I was, you know, trained on and just read over through life. So a lot of the stuff that I'm going to be sharing isn't because I'm so awesome. These are things that I have received, and I'm freely giving them to you. So please, use them. Steal them. Preach them. Teach these things. Equip others also. And take this material and absorb it in for your life. But the first tip I have is called 
running a language route. Running a language route. So one of the first things they trained us is we went to Belgium for six weeks uh, as part of our like organization's training uh, is how to, how to learn a language. What's the most effective way of how to actually learn a different language? Um, and they taught us a bunch of different things and a bunch of different methods. It was really eye-opening and incredible. Um, but one of the things they taught us was how would you learn a language if you were just dropped onto some crazy island somewhere with all the natives that speak that language and you have zero understanding of it at all? How could you go from nothing to being able to speak the language? And they taught us these very interesting techniques. That's interesting, right? And uh, so they taught us these techniques of how to you know, point at something. And I would just, on Japanese, this one's easy because it's pen. <laughs> right? But you would point at it and then ask your helper. You have to find a helper to help you and who is a native speaker. And they point at the thing and they say, pen. And then you say, oh, okay, pen. I got it. And then they point at the cup and in Japanese, cup. That's easy too. <laughs> right? And so we'd say, oh, cup. So you would then talk with your helper who you have established and you've created them to be a helper for you. And they're pointing at, just pointing at objects. That's it. And you would say, cup. Pen. And then you'd say, pen? Cup. Cup? Pen. <laughs> so you're putting this on top of, and the language kind of helper gets you. And they're like, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. On top of, right? Uh, so, right, or it's under. So you say, like, shitani. Or so you would just go through and you just point at all these things. Okay, how's that going to help you? You're actually going to learn just by doing that. No, you need the second step. You need to take all the vocab that you learn every day on this mythical island that you've been dropped on, and then you need to run your language route. And what the language route is, is you go into the places on a path of the different people you meet, and first you stop by the baker on the island, and you walk into his bake shop, and you say, hi, Mr. Baker. Of course, whatever you can say. At the very beginning, all you would say is, Ben. And then you would say, you would use that day's vocabulary you learned, the ones you learned that day. In a real life situation, in the real world, and that's how your brain gets it, just like babies learn. That, what I just described, is exactly how babies learn. <laughs> they point at something and you say the word, then they say the word, and they walk around and just say, pen, 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 <laughs> right? And then, right? So then after you go to the bakers and you use your words, uh, as you get more advanced, you say, hi, I'm learning this language. Uh, these are the words I learned today. This word, this word, this word. And, and if you get more advanced, you say, will you help me remember my words today? And then the people are like, this crazy foreigner dude is back again. <laughs> like, he goes to the baker, and then he goes to the laundry store, and then he goes to the grocery people, and then he goes to this on his route. And every day, he goes to each of those stores on his way home, and every day, you use your vocabulary, you know, 10 times that day in a real life situation. You're actually using the words, and that is the fastest and most effective way to learn a language. And you can do it without even having any classroom, as long as you get a helper, a language helper, who will say the words as you point and stuff. Um, it's really fascinating, right? So they taught us to do the language route. Okay, why am I saying this as far as evangelism goes? 
Because they also taught us as missionaries, your language route is what's going to end up helping you develop relationships and connections and evangelizing these people. Because they end up getting and fighting for you on your side. They're like, oh, he's here again. And now they're helping you with the words or whatever. And then they're like, they start to help you out. And then you start to know them. And then now you have a context of, of you know, some sort of a semblance of a relationship forming. And then as you're living life with them, you, you're starting to use your newfound words and to tell them about how, yeah, I'm a Christian, or you know, this is why I'm here, or whatever. Or I work at this church. Just dropping these basic things. And you're starting to develop a bunch of relationships now. Uh, so, so, what, so the problem is, is it, and what I'm getting to, is that you're going to need to learn to run a language route. And the reason why is because our society and our culture is becoming designed more and more and more and more so to isolate us and to keep us away from all human interaction. Everyone's like, yes, amen. It's pushing us into the place where we just watch Netflix alone in our homes and on our phones and in Facebook digital world and Next, it'll be the robots delivering our Amazon packages and not even a human deliverer will be delivering it and we will take one more human interaction out of this, our life. So uh, John Leonard, he was writing a book on evangelism and he told me about how he was writing this book and he was so busy and he's thinking about his book and his deadline and writing about how to reach people and whatever. So he's a busy guy, busy pastor dude, so he drives through the pickup groceries. In our part of the world, you can drive through and they'll bring the groceries out into your car. So you don't have to go inside and go deal with all the people and see them or the grocery you know, cart lady. And then he would go drive through the drive through ATM so he doesn't have to go inside the bank because it's the most convenient for him to just drive through the machine. And then he would go and pay for his gas at the pump. And he wouldn't walk inside and see the actual gas station employee attendant. Just put his card in there and get his gas and drive on off. So, and then he would go... Uh, get his food delivered by Bite Squad so a person actually delivers the food to his house, you know, sort of from his phone he orders it. He doesn't have to go into a restaurant and see people. He literally doesn't see a single person in his entire day so he can rush home and write about how to reach all the people in his community. <laughs> right? So when he realized this, he said, well, he repented. He said, God created us and put us in this garden, and he made us social beings. If my culture, and we all realize cultures have ways that are either more or less living in line in different ways with God's intention for creation, right? Different cultures are broken in different ways. He's repenting of ours. So you know what he started doing? Going and paying for his gas inside. When he went to the bank, he went inside to see the teller. Like, I would go inside to see the baker. And then he would go and see the same person when he paid for his gas. And then he would go and he sees the same teenage girl who's pregnant at the grocery store in this town scanning the groceries week after week after week. And he started, the first step was just reinitiating human contact into his life. The second step was actually noticing them as a person. Just noticing them. Hi, I see, I see you're very pregnant. No, don't say that. <laughs> but 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Noticing, seeing them, learning their names. Let me ask you, do you, do you know any of your neighbors' names? Do you know your classmates? All of your coworkers, your local barista, the bartender, <laughs> the grocery store clerk, all the school council people? Do you know all of their families? Can, are there simple, very simple ways of just getting a basic language route and route of the people in your sphere of life and turning on that intentional switch to know them, to know their name and who they are? That's the first step. Then the second step would be to drop the little things of saying about, just, just mention at all that you go to church in some way. And somehow mention that you're a sort of person who goes to church. And then, even more, you could say, mention how you're a Christian. Actually, faith has something that means something to you in any way. Just dropping little bits and, and leave it. If they pick it up and want to roll with it, oh, tell, tell me more about it or whatever, fine. If they don't, leave it. But now, in your network of your world, the people that you're seeing all the time, they know and recognize and see you as a Christian now. And then what, what John ended up finding was that people who knew he was a Christian, who he had been known for even years, going through whatever, when finally a crisis hit in their life, who did they ask to come pray? John, a great, kind dude who actually cares about me, actually knows my name, is asking about like my family. He's a Christian, so there's something spiritual there. And when we got cancer, who are we going to come ask to come pray and come talk about it? We're going to ask John because he's better than an Amazon delivery robot. <laughs> he has flesh and blood. So my first tip for you then is figure out what's your language route. And I'd suggest you actually just write it down. Like write a list of the places that you go or could go on a regular basis. Decide in your heart to become intentional with the people that you're seeing and being more human and just present with them and be normal, but also be Christian. And if that does come with, like Sean said earlier, it's going to put you out there now. Yeah, and it may cost you something. Even with coworkers, right? If your language route is to go to the cubicle of your coworkers or whatever, mention something about the fact that it's going to put it out there. You're going to be labeled. You could possibly be labeled as that guy or the Christian dude or whatever. I know there's a risk. But Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, right? Yeah, so this is how we go. This is how we can start very small, very basic tangible things that you can begin, begin doing. Um, Paul said, let's read together 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, So we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Do you see that? 1 Thessalonians 2. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives as well. Sharing our lives. See the little pie chart we got there where we have sharing God's word in the blue circle. If you're just sharing God's word with people, these are certain types of evangelistic strategies we can think of uh, where you're only sharing God's word. Right? What would that be? Well, I give you a track, but I don't have anything to do with my life. <laughs> yeah, and you're not in it at all. But then there's 
evangelistic strategies on the purple side on the right of sharing our lives. People just sharing lives together. Just being like in community. Right? But not having the courage to ever actually speak and share God's word. Here is where effective evangelism is. In the middle. Right? Paul said sharing not only the gospel of God but our lives as well. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. Because people see you. They know you. They trust you. You're not just a Christian, whatever, person and all their stereotypes. You're Josh in their life. And when you're, when you're um, running your language route and the things come up and, you, and you're meeting with people and you're caring for them, you're asking how their family is, you're being involved in their lives, then you have earned a place to speak spiritual things when it comes for them to listen and, and to care. But as long as we just keep going towards the trend of isolation and selfishness and hyper-individualism, then evangelism is going to become extremely harder and awkward for you. So very first step, get more human interaction intentionally in your life. Uh, second tip I have for you is just to throw amazing parties. <laughs> throw amazing parties. Like any excuse for a party. I, I have a list here to help get you started. Birthdays, graduations, any celebration, holidays, just a party for no dang reason at all. We're just having a party. <laughs> Neighborhood parties, themed parties, you know, dinner parties, cocktail parties, game night parties, Super Bowl parties, barbecue parties, faith and film like movie night parties. Any what you, Halloween parties. What else? The people of God, guys, have the absolute most to celebrate about. Right? We have the most reason to be happy and blessed and encouraged and just excited to be alive. We have the most as family to be loved and connected and interacted and, and sharing our lives together. We have all the reason to celebrate. Christians should be famous for throwing the best parties. In college, I was famous for throwing the best parties. <laughs> Maybe some of you were too, right? I'm not saying, you know, totally sinful, gluttonous, like uh, drunkardly parties, but parties where you could serve alcohol because you're non-pre-Christian friends, it's going to be great for them. Any sort of excuse to throw a celebration and turn it into an intentional place where you are not hiding the fact that you're a Christian. You're also not pushing it on all the non-believers yet. You're not, like, forcing anything but you're not hiding anything either. That's it. My mom is insanely good at this. My mom is just, her faith is on. And she does not hide it here or hide it there or show this face or show that face. She's just being and walking with the Lord no matter where she is. And so at the parties, she'll be like, guys, this is great. We're all here. We do want to give thanks to God for this meal. Because he provided all this for us. So we're just going to stop and have a quick prayer if you'd like to pray, and pray with us. Notice, she said, if you'd like to. She's not forcing everybody. And then people are like, oh, kind of maybe awkwardly shift around. Oh, okay, you know. And you know what people are like? They're just people, man. They're just kind. Nobody's going to stop and, you know, say, no, you know. <laughs> so guess what? What happens? We pray. Now guess what these non-believers who are coming to these amazing parties, guess what they feel? 
wow, I, I know a lot of Christians now, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, they, they all seem kind of okay. Nobody's threatening me here. Right? I feel like these are pretty good guys. And, yeah, okay. They're just being Christians, but guess what we're doing? We're celebrating. We're celebrating. And we have brought God into it. Now, how do we do this in Japan? What we do is each of the couples on our team, and we had, I think, three couples, and then another couple came, a Japanese couple. And uh, each of us were running our language routes. We were meeting people in our life and going to the places which people organize around, which are going to be schools, work, play, right? These areas of our life. And we're meeting them, or our neighbors, you know, where you live, live, play, work, right? Or learn. And as we're meeting and, and coming to know them a little bit in their lives, we create the space. And what we created was a Sunday picnic in the park. Uh, because Japan's pretty big. I have a lot of celebration that has to do with parks, like the trees, the Hanami viewing, and the trees viewing, and the moon viewing, and these sort of things. So it culturally makes sense for us to have barbecues in the park and to meet. So what we would do is, you're meeting a bunch of people, but I don't know your neighbors. And I'm meeting a bunch of people working at the university and stuff and college students, but you're not allowed on campus, really. Like, and you're meeting these people from your interactions and stuff, but we're all individually inviting them. Hey, would you like to join us to our Sunday picnic at the park? We would bring them in. And then at that time, that's where I'm a Christian, and I have dropped and said the fact that I'm a Christian. It means something to me. I go to church or whatever, so they know I'm not hiding it. But at this point, I'm not, you know, asking them to say a prayer or anything yet, right? I'm not doing any of that. I do just know I'm a Christian. They come, and now we cross-pollinate our relationships because I'm, a, I'm being intentional, but I'm not just lone wolfing it out there. These other couple in my life, they're also being intentional. And we got together and we covenanted that we're going to be intentional, missional, living in Japan. So they brought their friends. We brought our friends. And guess the cross-pollination can happen. Because you know what? I may be meeting people when I go to the baker and I invite them or I go to the whatever. And for whatever reason, we just don't get along that great. <laughs> or maybe, you know, for whatever reason. But he can become great friends with my buddy Matt. And they end up hitting it off. Right? Or maybe I'm really good at, at inviting and bringing people, and he's really good at something else. And guess what? The relationships cross-pollinate, and now the person who only knew one Christian, now all of a sudden they know three couples of all these Christians in their life. And they're all living in this way of love together and that celebration. Let me give you a quote here about how all of our personal giftings and ministries start working together when we start being intentional like together in that way. So he says, this is from a book called Total Church. He says, by making evangelism a community project, everyone has a part to play. The new Christian, the introvert, the extrovert, uh, the eloquent, the stuttering, the intelligent, the awkward. I may be the one who begins to build a relationship with my neighbor, but in introducing him to community, it's someone else who may share the gospel with him. That's not only legitimate, that's positively thrilling. Pete may never share the gospel verbally with Duncan, but his welcome and love are an integral part of the evangelistic process. If evangelism is a community project, our different gifts and personalities can complement one another. 
Some people are good at building relationships with new people. Some people are great at hospitality. Some people are good at initiating gospel conversations. Some people are good at confronting heart issues. In each case, I can think of individuals in our small congregation who fit the bill for each gift. Do you see what he's saying? The main point here is people aren't randomly probably going to just drive by the church and decide to come here on a Sunday. Maybe once a year. Does that happen? If that. But people will come to a celebration that you invite them to because you know them. They will come. And then your particular giftings and love will be mixed with the communities. The community's giftings and loves where the whole body is building itself up together in love. Because each part is supplying something. Because we all have the ministry of reconciliation. And because it's not just the professionals, right? But the scripture says that it's the minister's job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We are all the saints being equipped to do the work of the ministry together. But in order for it to happen, you guys, in order for it to happen here in this church, you guys have to decide to become intentional about it. And you probably have to talk to someone about it. Say, you know, I was thinking about this, and I would like to become more intentional. Would you like to be more intentional with me? Could we say, like, I'm going to try to start my language route. I'm going to start, start being more intentional with people I know. And I'm going to invite them to some celebration. I'm not going to invite them to church yet. They probably wouldn't come if you just invited them randomly to your church. You don't have that level of relationship. But it's very, very easy to get to the level of relationship where someone will come to a celebration with you. Very easy. And it takes the whole church to become the sort of people known for throwing incredible parties. <laughs> it takes all of us to come together and to do it. What a great job. Who would have known when we first started and we said, man, evangelism sucks. It's hard. Who would have said, this is great. Throwing amazing parties and actually getting to know people? <laughs> that sounds wonderful. So think of this three-strand analogy here at the bottom of page two. The three-strand rope. Uh, you have building relationships. In the middle strand, sharing the gospel. And in the bottom strand, introducing people to community. The point here is that you know, God, again, God can save anybody with just like one strand, right? You can just straight up, you share the gospel with somebody on the street and they believed. Boom. Done. But the point is, this works best and most effective when you have all three strands together. So you're throwing that life preserver out there in the rope and you have all three strands working at the same time. You're building relationships with people, real relationships actual caring. Aaron Wong style, my buddy, right? You're building relationships and, yes, sharing the gospel. But also inviting them to community. Inviting and getting them into some sort of community. Now, in a missional context in Japan, where people just aren't going to come to a church, because in their mind in Japan, well, why would I ever come to a church? I'm not Christian. You know? Like, for instance, why would you go to a mosque on Sunday? I wouldn't go to a mosque on Sunday. I'm not Muslim. They're not going to go. Neither will the non-believers go. Um, so where do you start? Start with the parties. Start with the language route and start with the parties. And then the parties become your community. 
that you're inviting them in. And then, but don't stop at the parties. Eventually, bring them into worship. Bring them and invite them into church where they can hear the word preached, where they can get that reinforcement, that backing, where they can see the gift ministries of everybody in operation and the love of the community and stuff. So that would be the ultimate. Building the relationships, sharing the gospel, but also introducing the people and bringing them into community. All right, that's it for this episode. I just wanted to let you know that I found out that Josh Anderson actually has a website called Pascal's Jacket. For those of you familiar with the Night of Fire from Blaise Pascal, uh, you can see the link to that in the show notes for this episode or online at restitutio.org. Although Anderson hasn't updated it in a while, it has a couple of articles and some contact info you might be interested in. Also, did you know that Restitutio is on Spotify? If you use Spotify a lot for listening to music, it does podcasts as well. So feel free to subscribe to Restitutio there. I know over the last few months since it's been available there, I haven't really announced it, but there are quite a few Restitutio followers on there. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes where you can search for Restitutio in Spotify and find it that way. Lastly, I wanted to read out a comment by Jim Winchester on episode 313, Questioning Way International Doctrines with William Barlow, which episode has been downloaded many, many times. It's uh, easily one of our most popular episodes of 2020. Uh, Anyhow, Jim Winchester writes, William, you did a splendid job of both portraying the ongoing degradation of the way, and for me, confirming that you and I so clearly simply outgrew the lamentable narrow-mindedness, inflexibility, and resulting corruption that has penetrated and locked down their organization for some time. Then he goes on, I thank God for your continued spiritual growth and for making the difficult decisions not to be deterred from continued learning of the truth and service to our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Winchester makes some good points here about how Barlow came through this whole experience, which if you haven't listened to it yet, go check it out. It's episode 313. Uh, I hope it's not the last we've heard from Will Barlow. Uh, I think he's got a lot to give. Uh, And he's such a great example of forgiveness and pursuing truth. A lesser person would have just been crushed underneath uh, the weight of being expelled from seminary like Barlow was. But in fact, he landed on his feet. He's serving God today and uh, serves as a great example to all of us. On another note, I wanted to let everyone know about an upcoming summer event I'm going to be attending. It's a weekend held at John Truitt's house in Paducah, Kentucky, called the 4th Annual 20s and 30s Christian Conference. Not the most exciting name in the world, but very descriptive. Held June 12th to the 14th. Hopefully by then, all of this business with the coronavirus will be well behind us. Anyhow, I've put a link in the show notes, also on restitutio.org, and here's the official description. This conference will feature wonderful speakers from influential biblical Unitarian churches from around the nation. There will be ample time for praise and worship, personal prayer, small groups, in-depth teaching and discussion led by wonderful teachers from multiple ministries and areas, and free time for fellowshipping together over food and activities. We can't wait to see how God leads us this summer and are looking forward to sharing this weekend with you all. The theme they have for the weekend is following Jesus Christ in today's culture. I'm going to be speaking there, as well as John Truitt, Jerry Weirwill, Dustin Smith, and others. If you're a young adult or know someone who might be interested, please pass on the invitation 
to this event. This is an event sponsored by the Allegiance to the King Ministry, which you can find online at allegiancetothekingorg Well, that's it for this week. If you'd like to support this ministry, Restitutio, you can donate online at restitutio.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.